0: everyone, welcome to my office. My name is Lynn Wu. I'm a pediatric urologist at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. And today we are going to be talking about neurogenic bladder as it relates to our pediatric patients with spina bifida, uh, which includes myelomeningocele, lipomyelomeningocele, and meningocele.
1: I'm here today with Dr. Lynn Wu, Associate Professor of Urology and Program Director at Case Western and Cleveland Medical Center. She is a pediatric urologist at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wu.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: We are also joined by Al Ray, a PGY4 urology resident at Case Western, currently on his research here. Thanks for joining, Al.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Dr. Wu, many of our listeners out there are pediatric surgeons and some are pediatric urologists as well. My main question to you to start us off, why is it important that pediatric surgeons are familiar with the management of neurogenic bladder?
0: Thanks, Ray. Neurogenic bladder can affect a lot of different um, um, disease states. And so we always think of spina bifida as probably the most common cause in our peds populations. But um, truth be told, you can see neurogenic bladder you know, in children with any spinal cord abnormality, a spinal cord injury, certainly after trauma, um, with which you guys are very familiar. And then other Um, congenital anomalies like uh, cloacal and bladder extrophy, or even in the anal rectal malformations or children with the, the vectoral kind of complex uh, where there's a known spinal cord problem. um, Those children often have a high incidence of neurogenic bladder as well. So, you know, I think it's, it's important that, you know, you as surgeons who are managing um, these really complex children, um, can at least be a little bit familiar with what a urologist is thinking and what their priorities are um, in, in taking care of kids who have bladders that uh, don't function normally for you know for whatever reason. So
1: thank you for bringing that into context for the pediatric surgeons out there. Um, and now, as everyone um, knows and loves, let's dive into some case-based discussions. So we'll start off with, okay. You're consulted on a one-day-old female who is found to have myelomeningocele. What is your approach for the initial evaluation of these patients?
0: So as you know, when we talk about it, the kind of the the layman's term would be spina bifida, or that kind of encompasses a lot of these myelomeningocele defects. And um, you know, one thing that that, uh, we'll maybe allude to later is many times we're picking these up, Based on prenatal imaging. So the families have some idea that their child's going to be affected with this issue. And I think this is really helpful to prepare them as much as possible for, um, you know, what their child might have to face often in the very early days after delivery. Um, A point that has been brought up on on a previous discussion was that sometimes these defects are being uh, repaired in utero, so in a a prenatal uh, fashion, and Mm -hmm. those are being done by pediatric surgeons. And that can be saved for another discussion, but um, there's been ongoing evaluation about what the outcomes of those children are versus children that are being um, repaired in the uh, neonatal uh, period, which has really been the gold standard, or the the kind of the standard uh, repair timing. So, when the children are born, there's obviously a, a major assessment done by the medical team, and then the neurosurgeons are very quickly involved in um, planning the surgical closure of the of the back um, uh, abnormality. And then once that's set, um, urology should be involved early on, partly so we can come and meet the families and and. Reassure them or counsel them and sort of prepare them, um, and then to uh, start the evaluation of the of the urinary tract. So getting to the the main question that you were asking, mm-hmm. generally getting a baseline um, renal bladder ultrasound and um, a VCUG or avoiding sister urethrogram are some good baseline um, imaging studies that are available at at most every um, major children's hospital, and that gives you a good look at uh, making sure there's two kidneys that are morphologically normal, you can detect the presence of hydronephrosis. Um, you can look at what the bladder shape looks like, um, and and it's a kind of a good baseline picture. Um, the VCUG is a test done and done in floor, you know, with fluoro, um, with a catheter being placed, and then that gives you the ability to look for the bladder shape, um, the presence of trabeculations, which are you know, which is a is a word we use for like thickening within the bladder or um, Uh, Increased muscle within the bladder, which sometimes is indicative that the bladder is not normal Um, It looks for reflux, which is of course backflow of urine into the kidneys And then it can give you an idea about the shape um, and contour of the bladder neck and urethra So you can get a lot of information from both of these um, Studies and and one thing that's an important take-home too is that the majority of kids with spina bifida um, Will have very normal studies at the beginning. So it's nice to get that baseline Mm -hmm. picture Um, Other than imaging, we also like to plan for a test called urodynamics, and this is very urologic, but this test uh, most people like to do within the first month or a couple of months of life. This involves placing a catheter into the bladder um, and then filling the bladder. And this gives you information on what the bladder activity is like. It gives you information on the pressure within the bladder. And that's a key thing that we'll keep coming back to because a normal bladder should be a low pressure kind of situation as it fills the compliance should be good, meaning that the change in the pressure as the volume changes should be very, very little. And that's the hallmark of a normal bladder. So in pathologic or neuropathic bladders, they have a tendency to um, have higher pressures. And that is the the most dangerous thing to the urinary tractors, to the kidneys overall. So we'll come back to that again. But the um, urodynamics allows us to kind of get a sense for if the bladder is... um, more normal in its in its function early on, or if it's what's considered hostile. And hostile is a term we'll use too to indicate that the bladder has a high pressure, that the bladder is demonstrating signs of instability, or it's contracting um, during the filling, which is abnormal. So your bladder should be kind of quiet and, and relaxed during filling, um, and. So all of that information early on gives us a way to track what's going on with the urinary tract as that child grows. And it can also give you an idea about who you have to watch more closely or who you might, who you might have to be more worried about early mm-hmm. on for hurting their kidney. Um, so, so those are kind of our early um, set evaluation techniques. And I think that's fairly standard across the board for most urologists. The timing of all of that um, can get a little bit grainy and remains a little bit controversial. That's what I was about to ask. <laughs> uh, one other thing that I have to put out there is that the urodynamics is um, also allows you to look for something called um, DSD, which is uh, one of our many abbreviations, but stands for detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. And this is something that can be seen in any neurogenic bladder situation. So for, again, my pediatric surgery colleagues, you know, in the setting of a spinal cord injury or or spinal cord trauma, um, those patients can also develop this pattern of DSD. And DSD means that there's a discoordination between the bladder and the sphincter. And you don't think about it in normal life, but those are regulated Um, Between very complex pathways between the brain and the spinal cord and then the, the nerves that go to the bladder And so for a normal person when you go to void your sphincter knows to relax and open So that there's no resistance to that at all But when you get into a situation where things are Discoordinated and one part of the bladder doesn't know what the other part of the bladder is doing You can imagine that voiding Or trying to contract your bladder while the sphincter is still tight and closed um, can lead to another high pressure situation. And that over time can again, result in high pressure that the kidneys are seeing. So that is why we will talk about some of the, the strategies for trying to get around that high pressure situation or how we can um, obviate a sphincter that doesn't open um, in response to to your own body because because the, the reflex mechanism is broken. And so it's important that that, um, that's something that we're paying attention to, not just for spina bifida, but in the setting of a spinal cord injury where those, those reflexes can be interrupted.
2: So Dr. Wu, you mentioned high pressure bladders that aren't functioning well. And we know that prior to the widespread use of clean intermittent catheterization in the 70s, the most common cause for mortality in these patients was renal deterioration. So how do you decide when to initiate Intermittent catheterization and what factors are you using to base this decision?
0: So this is definitely key. So um, Al mentioned the concept of intermittent catheterization, and that really is the mainstay, I think, for management of these patients. And so um, intermittent catheterization is is basically um, straight catheterization, and it's done on, a, on an intermittent basis, meaning you're not leaving an indwelling fully. And the idea behind CIC or or IC and um, catheterization is that on a scheduled basis, you're going in or the patients, you know, as they learn to do it or their parents are doing it to empty that bladder. And that will A, make the bladder empty completely it will help with the overall pressure situation because now you've taken a filled bladder that may be under pressure and taken that out. And it also allows the patient to empty if they weren't otherwise able to do so because of a sphincter problem, um, as we had discussed earlier. I also want to add to make things more complicated that just by the same effect that the bladder might be over um, or high pressure or overly contractile, some bladders are... A reflexic. So they just sort of sit there and hold the urine, but don't really efficiently empty the urine for which you need a good detrusor contraction. So again, basically the concept of CIC gets around all of those things because it enables the patient to get their bladder emptied on a regular basis. So Kind of in the bigger picture, when do we start doing that? And it is definitely a controversial thing in the realm of urology. So there are some people that feel all kids from birth with the diagnosis of spina bifida and neurogenic bladder should be initiated on CIC as soon as possible. Parents should be introduced to the concept um, and that can do many things. One, it can familiarize the family with what otherwise seems like a fairly complicated or daunting task. Um, It allows the child to accept it sooner. So you can imagine if the child's been catheterized for their entire life, that's much easier than if you're telling a patient who's six years old that it's time to start catheterizing. So that's the second part. And then maybe the most important part is there's some data now coming out that suggests If you do it early, you may actually be able to influence how that bladder develops and you may actually improve the overall bladder dynamics as that child grows. So it can be potentially protective um, in a proactive way to start catheterization early. Um, Kind of the more old school or traditional way was you would do all the tests that we talked about in the first question where you're assessing the urinary tract, Looking at the numbers on your urodynamics and then only starting those patients with worrisome features or hostile bladders on the CIC regimen. And there are plenty of people that still do that, large in part, largely in part because we worry are we going to be increasing the infection rate in these patients? Are we doing something that's unnecessarily invasive? Um, do we really need to do it? Um, but the, the argument, I guess, you know. Or the the worry about starting it sort of expectantly is that maybe there's already been damage done at that point, mm-hmm. um, and you're kind of doing it on a later basis. Like you're you're waiting to see something bad happen before you pull the trigger on starting this intervention. So it's um, less pre- less preventive. Then it's less preventative, but you know the you know. And then you're asking a family to adopt, you know, kind of a brand new concept to them, mm-hmm. um, at whatever age the child happens to be. But um, but I think urology still remains divided, and there's a lot of studies that are coming out that maybe will um, shed more light on what's the right thing to do for these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in general, um, most of us would agree that we'd have a low threshold of starting it, and it's always easier to say after the family's gotten used to it that if you've done all the tests and everything otherwise looks reassuring, that maybe you can feel more comfortable about withdrawing that for a period of time while you watch the child closely. But, but, you know, I think in my practice, I tend to have a low threshold to get everyone on board with it, have the families learn to do it. And then if we find that that particular child doesn't necessarily need it or is having problems with infections or, or, or other reasons to not do it, it's easier to sort of stop it for a little while after that period.
1: So Dr. Wu, are there any strong indications, it sounds like there are people in both camps um, on whether or not you should intermittently catheterize, but are there patients that you absolutely should be intermittent catheterizing?
0: That's a great question. Yeah, so I think most of us would agree that if the the pressures on your dynamics are very high and historically we use uh, 40 uh, centimeters of water as our cutoff point for, for pressure, uh, that's a worrisome situation. So those patients should be initiated on CIC. If there's already evidence that there's hydronephrosis or um, uh, a small capacity bladder um, or evidence of reflux because of the pressure, those are reasons to do it. Um, or if the aerodynamics suggests that's condition of DSD where we know that the bladder and the sphincter are not coordinated, those would be reasons um, to do it.
2: Um, so, Dr. Wu, we've talked a lot about managing the patients, but in the pediatric population, we're also going to be managing the anxiety and expectations of the parents. So, what is your approach to counseling the pa- uh, parents of these patients and discussing goals of care?
0: super key. And I know my pediatric surgery colleagues will understand that because you are not just managing the child, you're managing um, their guardians as well. So I think this is like any major congenital anomaly. It can be extremely overwhelming for for parents who have a newborn, um, and then they're being told that there are all of these things that they have to be, you know, worrying about as that child grows. So um, from the get-go, I think it's about providing clear education um, and support. And this is one of those entities that's really well managed in a multidisciplinary setting because there are so many different parts of the body that that can be involved. And so getting patients and parents plugged into these support services within the hospital or within the community um, is really important. And then I do try to start by explaining, you know, for for urology, what our priorities are. And that would be making sure that we're safeguarding the the renal function or the kidney function. As a secondary part, um, as the child grows, then we'll have that discussion about social continence. And for every family, that's a different priority as well. And then kind of hitting home that this is something that's going to require lifelong management and follow-up. So this family is going to get to know their doctors very well. Um, And and I think that conversation sort of has to be had multiple times in multiple stages because you you can't expect all of that to be absorbed or accepted. Um, after one conversation or after two conversations. And, and many parents, sometimes even after a few years of management, will still come up with a question or will demonstrate some behavior that makes it clear that they still don't quite grasp all of the things that, that you're trying to emphasize to them. So I think it's about patience, clear communication, um, and, and um, repeating uh, what your priorities and goals are uh, with that family and patient.
1: Dr. Wu, we've touched on, like even just now, the multidisciplinary care that these patients undergo. And I think earlier, you also touched on some of the times where you interface with the pediatric surgeons. Can you expand on that? How are these patients managed um, with so many disciplines working together?
0: So most hospitals, most children's hospitals, do have what's called a spina bifida clinic or a Milo clinic, which um, enables a team of, of practitioners to get together to see these kids in a in a one day kind of comprehensive clinic. And clinics can be different and modeled differently, but the general the general clinic would have a neurosurgeon, um, a orthopedist. Uh, urologist. And then there are some other adjunctive, um, specialists that are, that are very useful. So having, um, pediatric surgery involved, having GI involved, having social work and a developmental pediatrician, um, those are all, uh, I'd say bonus and, and good things. And Not every program necessarily has, um, time or, um, faculty to always, uh, uh, devote to these kinds of clinics, um, but you can imagine these children may require other things in addition to what's you know specifically re- related to their bladder or, or back. They may require G tubes. They may require. Um, um, Orthopedic uh, procedures and and other things that that um, that complicate the picture. So so again, it's overwhelming. But having that team approach, I think, is the best way um, to manage these patients. Since none of us are experts in everything, um, having a, a, a care coordinator is also good to sort of rope it all together. Just like our comprehensive care patients who who are who have you know many many issues and where the families benefit from putting all of the experts. Uh, advice into a cohesive plan for that child, knowing that that's going to change as time goes on. And I think it's good for the providers to also be on the same page about, oh, so-and-so is going to have a surgery involving this. Is there something that I want to do at the same time? Or does that affect something that I'm doing? And so so I think really the, the optimal management of these patients has to involve several caregivers who are in good communication with each other about what's going on.
2: Um, So we've had a lot of discussion about the initial management for these patients in those first few weeks of life. Um, I just want to circle back. You did mention that the timing for studies such as the BCUG and neurodynamics aren't set in stone. So I guess for the sake of discussion, let's say we have a patient that's now four months old. They've been doing very well in their clean intermittent catheterization. Um, They haven't had any urinary tract infections. Would you get any additional testing now that this patient's a little bit older?
0: So um, we would made sure that the aerodynamics um, had been completed by this point. So four months old, um, baby's already getting older. It's not unreasonable to consider repeat imaging with a renal ultrasound. So for most of us in pediatric urology, the kids are growing quickly, the kidneys are growing quickly. And so trying to do surveillance on the upper tracks, um, is important what, what we call the upper tracts, the kidneys, and so getting another ultrasound. Usually, we would do that probably every three to six months for the first several years of life, just because the child's growing rapidly. And many many clinics have that um, available to the patients um, when they come for their normal urology follow up. And so um, uh, so that testing would be involved. And I, I uh, would definitely praise the family on their ability to to keep up with the CIC. I probably wouldn't change anything right now since it sounds like they're doing very, very well. I would say if all of the numbers on the aerodynamics, the imaging, and again, the family's response to doing the catheterization is great, I would say let's continue um, doing that for now. Uh, One other thing that may not be clear is um, in addition to doing intermittent catheterization, sometimes we'll find that. The, the pressures are still high or concerning. And one other adjunctive measure that we'll frequently do in urology is add a medication, um, which is called an anticholinergic. And, and many people know it as oxybutynin or DITRAPAN. And this is a safe, well-accepted uh, medication that, um, helps to sort of relax the bladder or or increase the compliance of the bladder. For non-neuropathic patients, we use it to treat overactive bladder. So that, that feeling of needing to go all the time. And so we found that in this population, the anticholinergic medication in combination with intermittent catheterization is sort of our, our key combo therapy for how you manage a hostile bladder. So I, just to continue to dig up you know, the controversy. Some people even suggest that all patients with spina bifida should be started on oxybutynin early, again, as a prophylactic. I haven't seen enough evidence to say that that is necessarily supported uh, because it's a medication and can have its own side effects. But, um, but that is the, the second weapon sort of in our armamentarium when you're doing CIC and there are some still some concerns about that the bladder pressure or or findings on imaging that suggest a high bladder pressure.
1: So if you were to have that patient with the high bladder pressure the concerning findings and you're on anticholinergics and intermittent catheterizations how
0: often are you re-imaging them and reassessing them? So great question. So in general, if things are going well and the patient's stable, um, most people would say trying to do the renal ultrasound every three to six months, and there's various protocols for that. And then doing your somewhere between the, the neighborhood of six to 12 months. And I think the, the intervals depend on how worried you are. So in, in, a, in a patient who's clearly demonstrated some hostile characteristics, or in whom you question the parental compliance with the plan that you've laid out, you'd want to keep a closer closer tabs on that and maybe repeat um, imaging and testing sooner. But in general, um, from a practical standpoint, trying to do it you know, annually um, ends up being kind of what happens for most of the patients and hopefully can help you catch any major changes um, Also, if you're making a change to the regimen, so if you add in a medication in response to a concerning result, you might want to follow up sooner to try to get some quantifiable data that what you've done is making a difference.
2: Um, So we've talked a lot about the the patient that's doing pretty well on these conservative measures with the catheterization and oxybutynin. So let's move forward with another case. We have a a one-year-old child They've been compliant with the catheterization, they've been compliant with the medication, Um, but when you repeat the aerodynamics, you see that the bladder pressure is greater than 40 centimeters of water. Um, So what's going through your mind at this point, and how are you changing management for this patient, or maybe not changing management, and why?
0: So this is definitely one of the the scenarios that you worry about. I wish there was like a, yeah, we know exactly what the answer is. So far, I'm not getting any indication about the kid is in trouble per se. I don't have any, um, you know, all I know is that the pressures are not reading the way we want, but that the the family is is doing the things that we've asked them to do. So what? how worried I am sort of depends on how long they've been aggressively managing with the intermittent cathing and the um, medication I'd want to make sure that the, ma- that the that the medication was maximized um to the to the greatest dose tolerable by the child and then probably this would be and, it, and if those things are are being adjusted then this is that child that needs to have very close monitoring and close follow-up to see if there's worsening of that parameter. The The hard part is we don't know over what time period you're going to lose kidney function. So there's not a hard and fast rule to say, oh, if your pressures remain above 40, this is going to lead to loss of X amount of GFR in, in what period of time. We don't know. And so um, that's where it also, you know, this is why the the art of medicine is important. And and again, talking to one urologist might get you one management option versus another one. And I think that also plays into the dynamic of how that family is. And if you know that that family is going to return for all their follow-ups and allow you to to closely monitor them versus are they going to miss the next three appointments that you schedule for them. Um, But suffice it to say for that particular scenario, where the family's doing these things, and all I have is that the pressure's high, um, probably I would say needs to have close monitoring on upper tract imaging and, and your dynamics. But I don't think you can really increase the frequency of the intermittent cath at this time. And if you've maximized the dosage of the medication, there's not much you can do at that time. So it may lead us down the road where if subsequent follow ups don't demonstrate any improvement in the, in the parameters we may have to do other aggressive management options at that point for that child.
2: So you mentioned uh, aggressive management options and you need something other than just the high bladder pressure to consider going down that route. Um, so if this patient were to have additional findings such as uh, hybrid high grade reflux or recurrent UTIs, would that be an indication to do something more aggressive or Um, choose a different route of management for this patient.
0: No, so that's great. And so again, for our non-urology listeners, so reflux in the urology literature, it can happen for a couple of reasons. Some kids can just, kids with non-neuropathic bladders can have reflux. And we feel that that happens for a a reason about the the bladder and ureteral anatomy. But in kids with a neurogenic bladder, or abnormal functioning bladders reflux can be what we call secondary so the pressures within the bladder are so abnormally high that it overwhelms the valve mechanism where the ureter meets the bladder and then you get backup and to us that's a very poor sign if if it's the pressure is so high that it's actually forcing urine back up into the kidneys this becomes a very you know visibly dangerous situation and then combining that with recurrent UTIs is also, or urinary tract infections, is is equally deleterious because now you've got backup of a high pressure situation. So you've got, you're hammering the kidneys with high pressure and you are potentially showering the kidneys with bacteria, which now have a escalator to the kidneys, if you will, through this reflux mechanism. So both of those things are are terrible because now you're setting yourself up for kidney damage and or pyelonephritis and kidney scarring, um, which is also going to take down future kidney function. So in this situation, you need to kind of act aggressively and figure out how can I obviate that high pressure situation or how can I fix kind of what's going on? And so now we're going to go down the road of what are our what are our get out of jail cards for a patient in this situation? So going back to this scenario, it's a one-year-old. So it's an infant. Um, um, they're still, you know, they're still small. Uh, one of the gold standard ways that we in urology will get around this is a, a uh, cutaneous diversion. So we will do a cutaneous vesicostomy, um, And we can talk more about that later, but that's a, uh, a fairly straightforward procedure where we will open the bladder at the dome and sew it to the skin in the form of an incontinent stoma. And we do it kind of at the level just above the, the pubic bone. So it drains to the bladder, but this essentially prevents the bladder from filling. And so it takes care of that pressure situation. And if you take care of the pressure situation and the bladder is not filling, then no more reflux. And so, It's not necessarily an ideal long-term situation because you can imagine as the child grows, um, you know, the diapering may be a bit more difficult. Um, But that being said, there are some older patients and even adult patients that might benefit from this sort of diversion. Um, We try to avoid placing tubes or catheters long-term for these kids, suprapubic tube going to be ideal, it's going to lead to encrustation and um, infections, um, and it's going to get dislodged by an active toddler. Um, one of the ways in which um, a hostile bladder could be managed in a one-year-old patient um, mm-hmm. where there really is concern about uh, reflux and upper tract damage is performing a cutaneous vesicostomy. In which uh, the bladder dome is opened and brought to the skin in the form of an incontinent stoma, which then drains to the bladder around the level of the pubis. And this can be left in place um, for as long as the parents and patient are comfortable. But you can imagine as the child gets older, it can be a little bit messier um, to, to maintain the diaper for this situation. And so in general, we don't view it as a permanent option. But certainly, when you're worried about a child's upper tracts, this is our easiest and quickest way to decompress the bladder. Um, and a bladder that is freely draining through the vesicostomy won't have the opportunity to fill and reach high pressure and won't have the opportunity to reflux um, and hopefully will prevent further cases of pyelonephritis.
1: Dr. Wu, when you're making these vesicostomies, you said they're, it's a temporizing measure. So when do you decide to take that down and then do you continue to follow that patient?
0: Um, so in general, it's thought of as a temporary kind of um, situation. It can definitely get messy um, to diaper, um, particularly as the child gets older and bigger um, and, and is potentially making more urine. The timing of takedown really is, again, it plays into the family dynamic, the parental um, acceptance of, you know, what the next stages are, which we're going to talk about, I think, um. um Later on in our discussion, but when you are deciding to close your vesicostomy, there has to already be thoughts about how are we going to manage the bladder because once I put things back, it's going to likely um, be the same situation we were um, when I first made the vesicostomy. So we have to start having a plan for how are we going to continue to manage the bladder safely once we close the vesicostomy.
1: So I think you were alluding to this in, the, in that response, but let's move on to another case. I think that will help dive into that a little bit more. So we have a five-year-old um, female with neurogenic bladder. She's about to start kindergarten and parents want to have better control over her incontinent or over her continence. She leaks despite Q4-hour intermittent catheterizations and being on, I'm assuming, max dose oxybutynin. Dude,
0: you sound like a radio. I mean, a urologist at the (laughs) time. I'm learning. Yeah, you sound like a urologist. Um, So we're changing gears. This is an older child now, and this is a classic thing that comes up because parents have been, you know, hopefully very faithful about doing all of the things that that need to be done, and the child's starting to be very socially aware and, um, continence can become a bigger issue. And surprisingly, this is very personal. So it's not a priority for everybody. And I think a lot of it depends too on, um, kind of the cognitive status of the child and whether there are other medical issues that take precedence. Um, but continence is, is definitely a very important issue. So I will tell um, all of our listeners that this is one of the most challenging parts of managing um, these patients. So uh, in general, continence is very important. That's what we do as urologists. But it's important to know that continence in this situation comes at a price. So anything that we're going to do to try to help that patient gain continence could adversely affect how their bladder Um, works. And you can take a situation that was previously non-hostile and create a hostile situation based on something that you're surgically doing for that patient. It is very important that you select your patients carefully and that you do a lot of counseling with them as you're starting to dance around the idea about urinary tract reconstruction as it relates to continence and independence for this patient. So we talk about all of these things. And the, the next hard part is to determine what is the reason for the patient's incontinence. It can definitely be multifactorial. We know that the bladder may not be normal. So maybe the leakage is happening because the bladder is squeezing when it shouldn't be squeezing. Maybe the leakage is happening because the urethra is not normal. So the sphincter may not open or close uh, at the right times. It may be always open. And in that situation, the patient will leak all the time. It could be that the bladder itself is just not large enough to store the urine that's needed. So, after a very short period of time, it's already at capacity and then the urine leaks. And it could be a combination of all these things. So, it's up to the urologist to put all of the tests that we've been talking about together and try to figure out what is the, the main reason this patient is wet. And then that leads you to what your surgical plan would be. So, our surgical reconstruction can consist of and any combination of. Physically enlarging the bladder, and that's done through an augmentation. And the, t- and the augmentation is typically done with um, bowel, so a segment of bowel. Enter your pediatric surgeon. Exactly. <laughs> um, there is also uh, the second part, which is doing something to the bladder, neck, or sphincter mechanism. So we can't create. A sphincter but we can do something that hopefully will increase the resistance to the outflow of the bladder so that's tightening up the bladder for for just to keep it simple um and then um a final part of that is if you do something to increase the size of the bladder, and you do something to tighten up the bladder, you need to give that patient a reliable way to empty. Now, some patients will be able to continue to catheterize their urethras um, using their intermittent cath. But depending on the type of bladder neck procedure you do for them, or depending on their habitus or gender, it may not be ideal for them to cath through their native urethra. And so for that, there's a variety of catheterizable channels that can also be done. And most surgeons will do that at the same setting of the bladder and bladder neck surgeries. And so there's a variety of those that can be done. And so at, at various centers, um, the pediatric urologist tends to f- perform these fairly independently. I um, have a really good relationship with, with our pediatric surgery colleagues, and I really like to make it um, a very multidisciplinary collegial experience in the OR. So they are, my colleagues are happy to come in and help me with the bowel work. Which I find, you know, very reassuring. And also if there are complications, you know, that relate to the intestinal surgery or the the exploratory laparotomy, um, it's nice for them to, to be on board helping me manage those patients. And so we can talk about each one of those surgeries, but generally, it's sort of a menu of options and picking and choosing what's appropriate for that family. And you can imagine it's very individualized for each patient. Um, Some patients are more mobile than others and can walk um, and are more dependent. Some are more wheelchair bound or or more paraplegic or quadriplegic and may not have full use of their upper extremities. And a lot of that um, factors into your decision making as well. And I think the final situation that's becoming more apparent is that in the beginning the parents are usually very very involved and um, doing all of these things, and I think the goal is to try to get the patient to be as independent minded and independent in their care as much as possible, and and that's not always feasible, and and sometimes you have to also look at the maturity of the patient. But in this in this current. Um, day and age, our Milo patients are living a lot longer. And sometimes, um, you know, the parents are aging um, as their their children are getting um, into young adulthood. And so there has to be some understanding that if the child, you know, the parents may be very excited to sign up for any and all of the procedures you're Mm -hmm. describing, but who's going to manage that when the parent's not there? And so I think that that opens up a whole nother discussion that can be had, you know, in, in a separate, in a separate podcast, if anyone's interested about what happens to these patients later. Um, And if they do go into a nursing home type situation, is anyone going to be able to catheterize them? And, um, and if we don't have good, a good idea of that, what, what are the ethical considerations about moving forward? There are all these amazing sexy sounding surgeries that can be offered, but whether or not that's a safe option for that particular patient um, is again, at the discretion of the physician. And again, mm-hmm. it relates to um, kind of the art of medicine. So you can, can you, you can, you can always, but should you, and for that particular patient, is that the best thing for them? So so getting back to some of the nitty gritty for the surgery. So enlarging the bladder typically consists of an augmentation cystoplasty where a small segment, uh, sorry, where a segment of uh, bowel, either uh, ileum, typically, or even colon can be harvested, detubularized, um, and then uh, anastomosed to a widely opened bladder to kind of create a new roof on the bladder, if you will. Um, and this can increase the capacity uh, of the bladder and then help with the pressures, obviously. And the detubularization um, helps with any of the inherent contractile um, properties of the of the bowel segment. Um, colon tends to be, as you can imagine, much more contractile. Um, and so that's sort of the... Kind of been the the mainstay. There are historical uses of like the the, the stomach, um, which uh, has really fallen out of favor because of a lot of complications. And we'll talk about complications. But um, typically, like a twenty to to thirty centimeter segment of um, small bowel is the the t- is typically what's used based on how much bladder capacity you are starting with and how big of a of a of an augmented bladder you want to have to end up with. Um, For the bladder neck procedure, there's a variety of things. You can use uh, rectus fascia. So, where you harvest a strip of rectus fascia and you create a sling mechanism that kind of lassos around the bladder neck and you tighten that up to effectively kind of Uh, tourniquet the bladder neck, um, and then that scars it into place. Um, There are a variety of artificial sphincters, which we use in adult urology for for, um, patients with incontinence, and that involves some some hardware. Um, And there are a variety of procedures that we can do to um, actually lengthen the urethra on the inside by sort of um, tubularizing the distal part of the urethra. Of the, of the bladder and sort of elongating the urethra on the inside. And that probably goes beyond the scope of this. But elongating the urethra may increase the amount of resistance and decrease the chances that a patient's going to leak. And then the final, the, the most definitive way to um, eliminate any leakage is to close the bladder neck completely, where you completely divide the bladder neck from the urethra. And like anything, you need to provide multiple layers of closure and hopefully some sort of interposition layer to prevent uh, a fistula connection, which, which surprisingly um, can happen. Somehow the, the urine always likes to find a way out. So that's <laughs> something that, that we always have to struggle with. But there's multiple things. And again, it has to be individualized for that patient. And then in terms of the channels, um, the the most common one is the Mitrofenov, which is um, better known as appendicovasticostomy, where you would remove the appendix. So whenever you pediatric surgeons are taking out appendix, (laughs) I always cringe because it's a waste of an appendix. Um, I wish those (laughs) could all be kept um, for rainy days. But the appendix is um, preserved on its mesentery and disconnected from the cecum. And then it's tunneled into the bladder um, in a way that it won't leak where one end goes to the bladder and then um, the um, uh, proximal end is brought up to the skin as a cutaneous stoma. And then the patient catheterizes this. And this is a, an alternative to the urethra, but allows them to empty. And certainly if you um, do a bladder neck closure or you do a very complicated bladder neck procedure in which catheterization would no longer be possible through the urethra, um, having a, a channel like a office is, is is required. Um, if there's no suitable appendix, um, you can actually create a um, another sort of sort of tube using ileum, where you, you uh, this is called a Yang Monty tube, where you harvest a small piece of ileum and you also detubularize that in a fashion that allows you to close it back up. So if you you open it sort of transversely and then you close it longitudinally, and I, mm-hmm. I should probably show a picture of that. We can can do like a little drawing of it. Um, So you create a tube that you then plug in the same way you would as an appendix. And sometimes the appendix is not available, as we mentioned, or the appendix is being utilized for an anti-grade continence enema or a mace, a Malone anti-grade continence enema. Um, And oftentimes if we do that, uh, the pediatric surgeons may be doing that with us as well, um, as they will Mm -hmm. often manage the GI Um, the the enema solutions and and the irrigation protocols afterwards. So these are all ways in which we can kind of work together to do that. But those are the most common things. And and as you can imagine, all of those things come with their own complications. So I had mentioned that when I talk to families, I say that all of this stuff comes at a price and I wish it could be you know, as as perfect um, as, as we're taught in our textbooks. Um, but each of these things has its own specific complications and morbidities that can result because of it.
2: So Dr. Um, we have a five-year-old patient. Um, she's also trying to start kindergarten. Her parents are worried about continence. And she's already doing intermittent catheterization. She's on the oxibutin on the maximal dose. They aren't quite ready to move on to reconstructive options to manage her incontinence. What are some other options besides a full reconstruction?
0: Further management of the bladder at this point can fall into several different categories. And depending on what is going on with the overall bladder dynamics um, and sphincter mechanism, will lead me to counsel them, you know, on various options. The gold standard for surgical reconstruction um, would consist of augmentation of the bladder, a potential bladder neck procedure, and creation of a continent catheterizable channel. More recently, uh, urologists are offering Botox injections done cystoscopically. um, And the Botox um, is a method by which we can sort of Paralyze the detrusor muscle and help potentially with some of that overactivity or high pressure situation and This is being viewed favorably because it obviously may help delay um, The need for a major reconstruction Um, It may allow some kids to to manage their bladders safely for a very long time um, And may obviate the need for for major surgery um, but it's, you know, like both, like any Botox, it's not, um, a permanent situation. It does have to be repeated. Um, and ultimately it may not solve all the problems related to continents. Um, it may help with the overall pressure and, or capacity and, and, and those features on your but may not be sufficient, um, to get the, the child uh, as dry as they want to be. or or it may not be effective in in reducing the pressures like we like we we hope. But uh, Botox is a viable alternative that's being offered by many um, to try to stave off that that eventual need for for surgical reconstruction.
2: So you have follow these kids sometimes for eighteen or twenty years, and you've probably developed a close relationship with them. Um, but ultimately, they're going to have to transition to care with. Uh, adult provider. So what are some challenges that you face in transitioning these patients from a pediatric uh, center to an adult clinic?
0: So those are the very challenges that we are all um, struggling with now. So, you know, the pediatric management is as is as clear cut as, as we can make it. And I think that we at least have some sort of guidelines to follow, but it is definitely uncharted territory as you're getting into um, adulthood. And again, we, we discussed the challenges of gaining independence um, and um, having less reliance on their, their parents or their guardians um, and taking charge of a complicated health history. Um, they, as they grow, will have the normal questions about um, about sexuality, about fertility, about um, self-image. And I think that it's important that there are um, mechanisms to support this. And I am embarrassed to admit that this isn't well, well fleshed out um, at, many, at many hospitals. I think that that's the next priority um, to, to get a good transition a transitional plan for these patients. I will say that there are a number of programs with really good um, um, transitional clinics planned out, where there is a, literally a handoff or a, a slow a slow handoff um, starting in the teenage years, getting these patients introduced to the adult providers, um, and trying to um, make them take charge of their appointments and understanding what's important in in their health. Um, Disappointingly though, there's multiple barriers which would involve the patients themselves sort of getting lost to follow up. Um, Being a young adult, you don't necessarily think about all of your health concerns. And then um, a general mistrust of the healthcare providers and And I think there's also that sort of rude awakening when you get into the grown up world where you're not necessarily being shepherded or or um handheld through every process um and then on the flip side, there's the challenge of our adult providers not necessarily being comfortable managing um these patients with complex congenital anomalies and I think that our pediatric surgery colleagues can probably sympathize because um mm-hmm many of these patients do have, you know, a long list of surgeries and, 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 and complications that, um, make it fairly daunting for a, you know, a a general adult provider to want to take on. And so, you know, the key I think is, is finding a next generation of providers who, um, are interested and passionate about, um, reconstruction, um, and, uh, young adult medicine and, and ideology. And then, um, also wanting that continuity of taking these patients through then from young adulthood into, um, um, into geriatric ages, you know, where they're going to have other issues that that come up related to their health, um, that just come with the normal aging process. But I think getting providers who understand all these key issues the way we think we do in peds um, on the adult side is is key. And I and I don't think it's it's necessarily a you know a general provider that wants to do that. I think that there has to be a. Um, a a specialty almost that wants to devote itself to congenitalism or a a transitional type practice where they're going to see the challenges of of these of these patients and their surgeries and have to redo some of these surgeries or revise these complex surgeries. I think the emphasis is just going to be trying to transition at the time of adolescence um, so that they can be better prepared to take charge of themselves as, as adults. And then that's easier said than done.
1: Dr. Wu and Al, you've both given us a lot to think about and um, learn from the urology perspective. I was I was wondering that in, in these last few moments, if you could highlight some key clinical takeaways for our learners out there, like that can just be a little refresher to bring home the main points
0: at the end of this this hour or so. So. Key factor number one, um, neurogenic bladder is a dynamic and and changing situation, um, particularly in our pediatric populations who are growing um, physically. Um, And so a close observation and and, uh, surveillance of the urinary tract is really important in this population with the goal of maximizing um, renal function and preventing loss of renal function as that child grows. Um, challenges to this include, um, um, the amount of testing that's needed in the form of, um, imaging and neurodynamic studies, um, the need for parents and patients to be compliant with catheterization and, or medications to help relax the bladder. And then, um, if we're in a situation where we feel that the neurogenic bladder is adversely affecting renal function or has the the possibility of affecting uh, renal function adversely um, or is causing quality of life issues with incontinence, Um, then there are a variety of surgical options, some minimally invasive in the form of Botox, some maximally invasive in the form of urinary tract reconstruction that can be offered um, to to help with all of these problems. Um, These procedures can have uh, morbidity and complications that are important to know, Um, and patients will continue to require lifelong follow-up, especially in the setting of um, reconstruction, and uh, a need for uh, comprehensive transitional uh, care uh, in this patient population is sorely needed since many of them are living well into adulthood um, and um, are experiencing older parents who can no longer provide the kind of care they did when these patients were children. And that remains an ongoing um, clinical challenge for all of us in, in urology and medicine. That was a wonderful summary. So thank you, Dr.
1: Wu. Thank you, Al, for both being here and educating us on neurogenic
0: bladder today. Thank you so much, Ray, for setting this up. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it.
2: Happy to participate, Ray. Thank you for having me.
0: Now that we've discussed the management of pediatric neurogenic bladder in the setting of spina bifida, what are your key take-home messages from this talk today?